Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs Alliances podcast series. My name is Steve Lewis. I am the Assistant Director of Global Strategic Alliances for CSAIL at MIT. In this podcast series, I will interview principal researchers at CSAIL to discover what they're working on and how it will impact society. Gerald J. Sussman is a professor of electrical engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He received his Ph.D. degree in mathematics from the Institute in 1973 and has been involved in artificial intelligence research at MIT since 1964. His research has centered on understanding the problem-solving strategies used by scientists and engineers with the goals of automating parts of the process and formalizing it to provide more effective methods of science and engineering education. Sussman has also worked in computer languages, in computer architecture, and VLSI design. He is an accomplished textbook author, including the introductory computer science textbook used at MIT for 23 years. He has received the ACM's Carl Karlstrom Outstanding Educator Award and the Amar G. Bose Award for Teaching. Professor Sussman's contributions to artificial intelligence include problem-solving by debugging almost-right plans, propagation of constraints applied to electrical circuit analysis and synthesis, dependency-based explanation and dependency-based backtracking, and various language structures for expressing problem-solving strategies. Jerry, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Why is software usually so brittle? Well, there's a variety of kinds of software, okay? Some of it's produced in the academic world and some of it's produced in the commercial world, and the reasons for being brittle are somewhat different in those two cases. Academic software is brittle because the people who are doing it have no, no incentive to polish it for, for production for use by others. Okay, is to get a job done, specifically an experiment that's being worked on, or a, uh, for later, later uh, polishing by someone else that they don't know. Okay? And as a consequence, that, uh, that doesn't give them much incentive to do that. The, the commercial world has a completely different problem. Their problem is, is time to market is essential to living in a society where the network effect determines who makes the profit. So the fact is that the pressures in the, in the uh, commercial world to get something out very fast, whether or not it's any good, is very important. And then, because you're the first to market of that, that feature or something, and by golly, people get stuck on it, and then they'll keep using it, even if it's crap. Okay? So that's the, that's the as far as I can see, why the main purpose, the main pr problem for br brittleness. The difficulty is that anything that's brittle is going to be unreliable. It's going to have the problem that, uh, that it will not be maintainable and therefore it'll have to be done over and over again. And that's exactly what I'm upset about. You don't think there's any merit in sort of let crowdsourcing QA, you know, get the product out there, you have people kick the tires, find bugs for you. That's fine, that's fine. That's, I'm not worried about that at all. I'm worried about the fact that there's no incentive for people to, to do that much. But even so, if the, if the product is put together poorly, get it, the QA doesn't help because you can't fix it. Where she, the best you can do is rewrite the whole thing, okay? And that's bad. Yeah. So do you think this is more of a, a design issue, architectural issue, how to go about sort of designing better software? I think part of it's incentive issues. I think that's the most important ones, okay? 
but also I think that there is a, I think the engineers pretty much know what the right thing to do is in general, real engineers, okay? That's a very different question from, I gotta be careful because I think a lot of software engineering is not, not the kind of engineering I'm talking about. If I, were, if I were building electrical circuits, I know what I have to do. I have to make things fit tolerances. I have to make sure that they're manufacturable, things like that, okay? Do, the, do we have that in software? No, because it's too easy to, to change and flip and go very, very fast. You change it, start all over again, maybe even easier often than, than trying to fix some old thing. I see. And could you describe what is additive programming? Well, additive programming is an idea that many of us have had over the years, which is you would like programs that have the property that they are flexible in the same way that, uh, that in, in, such, in a very specific way, in ways that they can be adapted to new, to new situations rather easily. And the way you do that is by adding stuff to it, not by changing the stuff that's already there. Okay, that's a very nice thing if it can be done. Okay? So that's very hard. There are technologies that I've been working on over the probably the 40 years of my being a faculty member here, 45 I suppose, that I've been in, trying to improve that kind of thing, mostly for myself, because I like to have systems that last a long time. Okay? I'm, I'm lazy. Can you give us an example? Oh, sure. An example of, well, I'll tell you one that's not me. There's a very famous program called Emacs, which is a text editor originally used for, by programmers. It's still used by, by a very large number of programmers. It's over, it's over 40 years old. Probably 10,000 people have contributed to it. Okay. It has gone through major, major revisions like adding Unicode to it, which is an enormous tra transformation, and it survived, and it works. And it's, it sits there and it works reliably, independent of the fact that there's probably had 10,000 contributors. Now, that's source, right? It's free software. It's not just open source. Okay, it's, it's software that uh, obeys the rules of free software. Okay, it's GPL. But there's an example of a thing that's lasted forever. Okay, it's real quality. It's tough as nails. It doesn't crash. And was that, was a program like that designed with this openness in mind, this additive? Absolutely. It was the, the, the version, the original version was done by Richard Solomon, okay, who worked for me as a, at the time. Uh, it's a it's a very beautiful design. It's based on on an interpretive language, okay. So there's a, there's a and that the extension language is basically interpretive, and as a consequence, it's easy to, to add things to it. That the underlying structure is a is almost like an operating system. That is, it protects its own memory. It, it does its entire its memory management very clearly, okay, and that's. Uh, that's uh, it's a very high quality build, okay? And that's why it survived so long. Do you think it has anything to do with the simplicity of the actual, uh, actual application versus, you know, a text editor is not as complicated? Oh, but, you, but come on now. Uh, when you have, uh, that's true at the beginning, but the text editor has accumulated so much stuff that it's, a, it's amazing. It knows every computer language, and, can, and knows how to format it, it knows how to, uh, it knows how to highlight the, the keywords, it uh, helps you with the, uh, with, the, with the indentation and things like that. All of that works out beautifully, okay? It knows about how to interact with the compilers and the, uh, the uh, debugging systems for, uh, for things, and it really connects directly to the operating system in beautiful ways. It's, not, it's a huge program. 
it may be one of the largest programs in the, in the uh, free software world. How about that? Can you give us another example? Sure. Well, there are things that started out being uh, in universities, like, uh, uh, well, I think a lot of what's good, I think, I think Wolfram, like Wolfram's Mathematica thing is an example. Okay, it's a it's a program that's been added to for a very long time. It started out originally uh, from things that were, you know, at uh, MIT we had Math Maxima, which was done by Joel Moses and Bill Martin, uh, but you know that done a lot of the ideas for the later things came from there. But the bottom line is that that's a thing that grows and expands. Okay, well we see that, but we see that in other worlds too. We see cities. A city is like that. It adapts to the changes. Okay, a city is not a is not a uh, is not it's not a program. It's a different thing entirely. But it has a property that as the world changes, the city adapts to fit it. Okay, and that's so. What you've noticed, for example, is that amazingly enough, something like New York City has this wonderful subway system underneath it. That was probably put in at the beginning of the 20th century, mostly. It was very expensive, but boy, that made that made that city work. Okay, and. Uh, I suppose Boston had an earlier one that didn't quite work as well because they didn't they didn't integrate it as deeply into the system. Okay, interesting analogy. Um, what is Postel's law, and how can it be applied? Okay, uh, well, this guy. The, the, first of all, who is this guy? Okay, the guy was the guy who ran the internet basically. By he he he, he was the guy who assigned assigned uh, what's called um, the the domain names. Okay. Until he died, basically, and it became part of a, it became a, an organization that did the work he did. Uh, he had a great a great idea about about making things work well, which came originally, as far as I'm concerned, from from digital electronics. The reason why digital electronics works well is and works very well is because, say, a particular piece like a an inverter, which is a device in, in an electro, electrical device has the property that it can see a ones or a zeros don't have to be perfect when they go in. Okay? They, can be, they can be jiggling them, they can have noise. Okay? What comes out is perfect. So it has a range of inputs that it can accept that, that it will then turn into good stuff. Okay? Well, Postel's law is that. Basically says be generous in what you accept and, and be, be very precise and specific about what you put out. Okay? And good programs can be adapted that way too. Why should it be the case that, that a program that takes a temperature as one of its inputs should care whether it's Fahrenheit, Celsius, Kelvins, you know, anything like that? It's up, that's, that's, it should be able to handle all that stuff. And that's very important in, in real programming because what happens is then, then there's wiggle room. When you change something, supposing that something's built on that, okay, well, you change something that doesn't have to change. Okay? It gives it a certain kind of stability and flexibility. Interesting. In what ways can proofs of correctness be limiting? Ooh. Well, first of all, I like proofs. I'm an old mathematician, so I'm, don't, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't have proofs. It's not a question about the proofs of correctness that are limiting. It's the, it's the requirement that a person must prove things in order to make them work. Okay? It's sort of the, the idea that, that every program you want to make it as correct as possible, which is a problem. Because this here produces a, a, a very a kind of brittleness, and I'll explain. Okay, supposing you have the requirement that every part of a program has to be completely proved in order to build the next part on top of it. Okay, 
Well, everybody's going to, every, a good programmer is going to say, or a good engineer says, I got to do this. I got to work out the simplest possible way. I have to use only the most restricted possible procedure to do this job so I can make an easy proof of it. Okay? I can't give it that wiggle room because that makes it more complicated, my proof. Okay? As a consequence, all the pieces are piled up on tops of things that are exactly perfect. You know, and if you put together a diamond, you can't modify it okay, to, to make, a different, make a slightly different thing. You can't take a little piece off here and move it over. Okay? That doesn't work. So you have to, you have to, you, what you end up with is something that's very stiff, brittle, and works for one problem. You change the problem, it's over. Okay? Whereas if you, if, you, if you allow people to use a little bit more flexibility, and then they're not requiring them to prove things, but you, there are certain parts that you have to prove, of course, I will certainly tell you that the memory management system of an operating system better be perfect. Otherwise, it's going to produce junk. What's going to happen is that it's going to crash in ways that nobody can debug. Okay? That's so a, gra- a garbage collector in a, in, a, in a programming language. It has to be perfect. But that's a tiny program. Okay? It's only maybe two or three pages. That's it. So that I can understand. I, but I think the idea of, of things that say most things don't need to be proved anyway. Suppose, supposing a Google search, one out of 100 cases produced a particularly wrong answer. You think anybody would ever notice? No. So it's not important. On the other hand, financial things have to be correct for law, legal reasons. But then proof may not be the way to solve that problem. That's why you have auditors. Okay? The auditors provide a second check on everything. Does AI uh, play any role in making software less brittle or me making more, being more flexible? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a problem because AI is a, what is AI? AI is the part of computer science we don't know how to do. That's always what it is. Go back in history. In the 1960s, it was not even obvious that a machine could play chess. There was a philosopher by the name of Hubert Dreyfus wrote a book that basically said he couldn't. Okay, of course, the computer beat Hubert Dreyfus. Okay? The, uh, so, but that turned out to not be true. Okay? And the, but then, then playing chess stopped being AI. It was something you knew how to do. People in the 1960s weren't so sure that you could make machines that could do symbolic algebra, specifically symbolic integration of, of, uh, of expressions. Symbolic expression, integration of expressions used to be thought of as a very, very, uh, uh, very intelligence-intensive activity. Great mathematicians spent time doing that. Okay? Uh, and they made, you know, compiled big books full of the symbolic integrals that they could find. The fact is that uh, we figured out how to do it. That was mostly done by Joel Moses, and eventually there was a Rish algorithm that did it perfectly. But Joel Moses made a big, it was first Slagel, then Moses, and then the Rish algorithm. And now it's no longer AI. You can go buy it from somebody. Okay? And it's, uh, AI, is, AI is always the part we don't know how to do. Okay? So... <laughs> You know, and, and of course, the, big, the current change is that AI is now the part of making things that can see pretty well. Guess what? It doesn't work very well. That's, you know, there's effort on that, of course, and that's good. Uh, so as something, becomes, as something becomes well understood, it stops being AI. There's history like this. Philosophy is that, too. As something becomes clear, it becomes a science. Philosophy spins off things like physics and chemistry and things like that. That's what they were all defined by, by Aristotle anyway. 
in 300 BC or something like that. So do you think AI has a PR problem that people really just don't know what it means? I don't think, well. Or what they think it means is. I think, I think that they, okay, it, becomes, it becomes a buzzword right now. Okay? You can sell something because it's AI. Great. Okay? The important thing is whether or not what it actually does. Okay? And eventually, they'll be very smart machines. Yes, I'm very pleased about that. I'd like machines to be smart. Yeah. This machine that you have here is not very smart, you see. It's, it may be conscious. That's a different question. Is it? Oh, yeah. It knows, it knows about its, its surroundings. It knows about its... Uh, it it uh, has senses. It feels what's going on. It can report upon things that don't work inside it. It can, it can complain when it's in pain. Come on now. It's conscious. It's just dumb. That people think that consciousness has something to do with intelligence, that's not true. You have plenty, plenty of conscious machines that are not too smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. For for everyday users, you know, how will these improvements better their experience if we make software less brittle? Oh, it's I think it's very clear. Stability. That's one of the things. How, much how many times do you complain about the fact that somebody changed the operating system on you and all of a sudden your applications don't work? Okay? That sort of stuff. That happens like once, once every few weeks around here. Okay? How much, how much uh, case do you get some horrifying bug in some program you use all the time and you try to complain to somebody and they say, well, gee, maybe you wait for the next version. Okay? Or something like that. I mean, uh, these are, these are things that are not just annoying, they take up huge amounts of, of human effort. And I think that that's, uh, that's the kind of thing that I think will be better if, if, the, if there's a more smooth way to put together programs so that they can gently transform. Okay? So why do bugs exist in software? Bugs exist everywhere, not just in software. Well, let's talk about software. Well, I'm going to do it more generally. Bugs are, are, bugs are necessary. Okay, they're a, a part of the fundamental problem solving of an engineer, as follows. You want to build some complicated system. You have to have a plan. The plan means that the system is made out of various parts. You have to figure out how to put those parts together to make the whole. You have an approximate idea, which you try, and it doesn't work. Now you have to fix the interfaces. You have to make things that you have to figure out how to make it work. Okay, that's if you didn't if if, if it worked from the beginning, it wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to make something very complicated. You know, the, this happens. This is not just even in, in engineering. It happens in, in real poetry, don't it? A, a you know a good poet is trying to manufacture an experience for the reader that changes that gives them an emo, and puts them in an emotional state. A famous paper by. Edgar Allan Poe, what's it called? The Philosophy of Composition, you can look it up on, online, okay? is about how he constructed the raven. And he did it in exactly the way you know, I'm describing. He's saying that putting things together in order to make the appropriate emotional state, I pick parts and I put them together. I have to fix the interfaces. I have to smooth this place out and all that. That's exactly what an engineer is doing. Okay? So, I think that uh, building anything complicated to have a particular purpose, there will be bugs and the bugs have to be fixed. But you can't avoid the bugs because they're part of the, of the design process. And brittle software, making software less brittle, do you think that will introduce more bugs? It'll make, it'll make it more bugs at the beginning and fewer in the end. 
Okay? What it means is it'll make the things more debuggable. Okay? You want to make the, you want to make the software understandable. You want to write it so that a person can read it. I, one of the best things about a good piece of software is I can give it to you and you can read it. Guess what? You could learn something from it. You could learn, if what's the software that says how to do something? Well, wouldn't you like to know how to do something very complicated that you can't, can't uh, write down in English? Sure. So I'll give you a piece of code. Okay. And if it's well written, you should be able to read it. Why is having a breadth of research interests and passions important to computer scientists? Well, I think it's important to everybody, actually. But the, I agree. The critical reason is the critical reason for 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 anybody who's going to build stuff that's complicated, is to be is to be inspired by the problem domains around them. You know, if if it weren't for if it weren't for physics, hardly any mathematics would be invented. Okay? If it weren't for if it weren't for for uh, for things like molecular biology, it probably wouldn't be the case that anybody would ever care much about the mathematics of genetics. Okay? It's, so what's going on here is that, is that there's a huge amount of, of pressure on people to do things because they know other things that are related and that they can solve a problem outside of the, this particular little thing they're working on. So I think, for example, uh, I'm, always, I'm always inspired by biological systems, which are extremely flexible. Your genome is about a gigabyte. I don't know if you know that. Right? It's three billion base pairs. Each base pair is, is one of, a choice of one of four, so it's two bits. So it's about a gigabyte. Okay? Maybe if you added the, the, the methylation, you get to two gigabytes if you really, if you really pressed it. But that can't be any more than that. That's not a very big piece of code. On the other hand, it builds a, from a single cell a very complex machine, a person, Okay? that runs for about 70 years with very little maintenance and which is, uh, uh, which is able to fend off attacks by other machines of the same sort that like to eat him. Okay? And better than that, it's very flexible. Change a little bit and all of a sudden you get a rabbit rather than a person. Come on now, we don't know how to program yet. We haven't learned. Okay? But be inspired by that. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to code like that? Wow! I want to be able to make code that, can, that has that property, that it's, it, it runs for very long periods of time, produces complex machines at a very, with a very little, it's quite dense, and yet it's flexible. That's, a, that's the reason, inspiration. Definitely gives you something to think about, although I, I wonder how trying to mimic a biological system or human. I didn't say anything about mimic, okay? I'm not trying to mimic, I said be inspired by, quite different. Mimicry is actually a bad idea, okay? You don't want to make an airplane flap its wings like birds. It's very different. But being inspired by the fact that there are birds or bats gives you some insight into what it takes to make something that flies. Good point. Um, what are some of the things that people in industry could learn from academia? Well, I think it's a very, that's a very complicated question. There's a lot in, 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 academia can learn from industry, too. You've got to be very careful. This is not a one-way Thing. The most important things that industry could learn from academia is that putting more people on a project doesn't make the project run any faster. Okay? I suppose that's well known anyway. That's the famous Mythical Man Month book. But the, there's a bug of which I've observed in industrial code, which is that the normal way people try to insulate themselves from turnover of their employees is by having lots of redundant people. 
they sort of hire more people than necessary and put them on a project. And what they're doing is they're trying to insulate themselves from saying that there's, they want to make sure that they think of the programmers as interchangeable parts, that you could, you could lose one, you could put one in. That doesn't work. That's just not a, not a viable strategy for any kind of creative activity. Okay? On the other hand, uh, you, there is a things that academics could learn from industry, which is, among other things, the, the idea of how to plan stuff so you get you know, sort of the ch ch timing. You know, how do you put out, how do you say, I'm going to do this first, and then this, and then this, and that gets done. Okay, so the, sort of the, the kind of planning necessary to put out a product is quite different, and also a lot of testing that's done to put out a product is quite different, different in industry than it is in, in, in the academic world. I don't have to make sure that, you know, do a very strong test on something to use a program that I've written. I do have, I have to have confidence in it for my, my job, but if I want other people to have confidence in what I'm doing, I better, give so, I better put some, some effort into very extensive testing, and that's important. What would you say your proudest accomplishment is in the world of academia? Students. I am very pleased about the fact that I've had about 45 PhD students finish working for me, doctoral theses. And they're my friends, and they're fun. Okay, that's, and that's probably the most important thing I could, I could point out. Okay, and almost all the almost all of the actual research work I've done has been motivated by teaching. I don't know if you know that. Most people don't realize that. Uh, yes, going back through, if you walk through the various the various things I've done, you'll find that a lot of it comes directly from an intention to make a better way to explain something to someone. Okay? How can I say something clearly more and more effectively and give someone something you can read that they can understand? Okay? That's, that's, a, uh, that's a pretty much what I mostly, mostly have done. Now, I can think about other things, too. If you want to say about specific academic accomplishments, I would say the ability to rapidly connect together design and building of hardware to high-level goals is something that got me all, uh, uh, a lot of places. I, I, did the, I was studying some, uh, some dynamical astronomy, where I was worrying about uh, the motions of the planets and things like that. I got a bunch of people to help me whip together a special purpose machine for doing orbital mechanics called the digital orrery, okay? That, so, that basically solved a 300-year-old problem having to do with the stability of the solar system, okay? That was a, that, but th what I needed was the ability to start from the, the problem at the level of, of the mathematical uh, description of the problem, work it all the way through code to, uh, to, to do the, the kind of, uh, evolution that I wanted with extremely high precision, attacking things like the deep problems of numerical analysis in this case, then going all the way down to, to the design of, of uh, boards full of, of chips okay, to do the job. That's, that's what I feel very strong about. Fascinating. And where can people go to find out more about your research, your work? I think the, the, my webpage at, at CSAIL, okay, that's a it's fairly extensive. It's got lots and lots of pointers to mostly my students' work, okay? 
and some, a few papers I've written, but not many. I don't believe in lots of papers. You know, if you look at how many papers in his lifetime did Richard Feynman ever write? Not many. Okay? But they were good. <laughs> That's what I care about. Excellent. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Jerry. If you're interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at cap.csail.mit.edu and listen to our podcast series on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast and stay ahead of the curve.